Welcome to Unfuck Your Brain, the only podcast that teaches you how to use psychology, feminism, and coaching to rewire your brain and get what you want in life. And now here's your host, Harvard Law School grad, feminist rock star, and master coach, Kara Lowenthal. All right, my chickens, I am so excited for this conversation because I hear so many of your thoughts about money and finance, and I coach so many of you on this, and especially when I'm coaching coaches on their business, which happens only occasionally, but is always a lot of fun. That's one way to put it. So I'm super excited for today's conversation. And I almost feel like you're on just first name basis. You're like financial Tori, the financial feminist, but Tori Dunlap, who is an author, a coach, a speaker, her debut book, The Financial Feminist is out and is amazing. And, you know, I like to let people choose themselves. I'm going to do that. But what I want to say before, if you're listening to this and you're like, my money mindset's fine, I got it. Just keep, everybody should listen to this episode. I have never met anybody, especially a woman or somebody socialized as a woman who does not need to work on her thoughts about money. So let's get into it. Tori, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Thank you for having me. I am vigorously nodding my head because even as somebody who did have a financial education growing up, it is interesting to think about the sort of ways that that impacted me in a negative way, even though I am like an Olympian in saving money and making smart financial decisions. So yeah, I mean, shameless plug for the episode, but please stick around. I, uh, like you so lovingly put it, I am a money speaker and educator. I am now a New York Times bestselling author, which is a thrilling thing to say. Financial feminist was an instant New York Times bestseller, and I'm so humbled by that. But I was put on this earth to fight for women's financial rights. So that means teaching women how to save money, pay off debt, start investing, negotiate their salaries, start online businesses, and more. We have over 3 million financial feminists across all of our social media accounts. We have a podcast also called Financial Feminists, which is one of the top business podcasts in the world around business and money. And this is my life's work. It's my favorite thing to do. And really seeing a financial education as our best form of protest as a member of a marginalized group. I don't think we have any sort of equality for any marginalized group until we have financial equality. So it's this idea that if you know I can teach you how to save money and how to pay off debt and how to navigate the financial system that exists to the best of your ability, then we can start changing the system that exists for everybody. I love it. Okay. Let's define financial feminism before we get into sure. like, the details. How do you define that? I kind of gave that definition in the previous one, but it's kind of what we call oxygen mask finances, which is like put your oxygen mask on first, take care of yourself so that you can take care of others. And so that we eventually can create a plane where everybody gets an oxygen mask. In the book, I start and end with the same quote, which is when you have all you need, build a longer table, not a higher fence. And Mm -hmm. it's this idea that again, if I can teach you how to navigate money, if I can teach you how to be financially well, then all of these choices open up to you. You get to live this big life that doesn't require you to subscribe to certain patriarchal ideals, doesn't require you to stay in a situation you don't want to be in anymore. You're no longer controllable when you have money. And that's the feeling I want for any marginalized person is the ability to be in situations they want to be in rather than situations they're forced to be in. And then when you're taken care of and when you're whole and stable, 
and safe and healthy, you get to use the resources at your disposal to start affecting other people in your communities and therefore start changing the system that exists that basically fucks everybody. <laughs> so yeah, financial feminism to me is, is our best form of protest again and in, in getting any sort of equality for any marginalized group or community. So I'd love to talk about something that I think can be a little tricky in mm-hmm. this because I this comes up for me as a coach. Let's say that I, you know, I'm teaching people how to be more effective at their goals, right? And yeah. there's there's a lot of, I would say one of the main kind of well, it's a conflict, but like different definitions of feminism, right? One mm-hmm. is sort of feminism is a political movement with specific political and social equality goals. And one is feminism is about empowering all women, right? So yeah. one of the things that like I think about all the time is like, what if I coach somebody to like become empowered <laughs> to then go get elected and then impose a bunch of policies that I think are like terrible for women and take away our freedom, right? Sure. Maybe that's, maybe I'm doing that and I don't even know. And so I'm curious how you think about, obviously you're sort of teaching women how to become more financially savvy, build wealth and have more economic power yeah. from a feminist perspective. But how do you just, I'm curious how you think about that tension kind of in your work. That's a really interesting question. I find that the people who, let's just say it, are on the right are very turned off by me using the word feminist at all. <laughs> Maybe that's if they're so, not coming to you. Anyway. Honestly, <laughs> like truly, I think that the amount of like flack we get typically from men that are like, why does this have to be a gendered issue? Feminism mm-hmm. is a poison. Like I'm like, okay, then you know you don't you, you don't get this. It's fine. That's not for you anyway. Right. And if you read my book or you consume, you know, two seconds of our podcast, you realize that this is coming from a very like socialist left leaning. Like, okay, we are bettering our lives to survive this mm-hmm. fucked up capitalist hellscape. Mm-hmm. And to hopefully again burn the system down and change it for everybody else. Mm-hmm. And unless you choose to like completely opt out, like a you know. Discovery Channel, live on a farm in Alaska and grow your own food and make your own clothes, which I would argue still like is not entirely non-capitalist. Like we're all participating. Mm -hmm. And so you have to learn to navigate it doing the least harm to yourself, the least harm to your community. And I would argue that the, the, again, the people who have politics that are very dissimilar to what I would define feminism as, which is the equality of all genders, aren't interested in our work anyway. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think that's shown a big picture. You know, I think there's yeah. obviously smaller scale ways in which totally and and we all define it differently, right? We all yeah. have, you know, certain, you know, there's the classic people who are like, I'm socially liberal and economically conservative. And I'm like, I don't know if you can be that truly. Yeah, you're like, that's okay. not a that's a good talking point. Doesn't <laughs> yeah. down like, I get seconds. I get what you're trying to get at, but you understand that like, you know, perfect example is like a person's right to choose, right? Having abortion access, the ability to terminate a pregnancy is a financial issue, but we don't talk about it like it is because, you know, it concerns typically women or people with uterus. So I think that it's really important <laughs> to, yes, define like what feminism is, you know, for individuals, but also, yeah, I find that people are very turned off immediately if they're not interested in identifying yeah, as a this feminist. Is true. This was how I felt about libertarians in law school all the time. Oh, I was like, yeah. Right. I was like, you guys, do you know it's not a coherent political philosophy? Like, why right. are we all pretending that it does make sense? You're going to drive on the government maintained roads in your fancy car and you definitely want the police force. Mm-hmm. You don't think you should have to pay any taxes. Just right. so I understand how this is working. Well, and the thing is, is you start realizing this is like a larger conversation about, you know, everything I believe about religion and politics anyway, is it's like you have this in theory concept, whether that's, you know, I don't know, Catholicism or capitalism, right? And you're like, 
on paper, maybe. Okay. And then you have real life people who make mistakes and who, you know, have greed and, and get, you know, the lust for power. And it's like, none of these things in actuality are perfect because humans are not perfect. And so again, my whole thing is it's like, let's just navigate this, do the least harm we possibly can in a already fucked up system. And if I can, you know, get a little bit of joy from that, feel some stability and some safety and help other people feel that way too. Cool. I've done my job. Yeah. So let's talk about one of the things you mentioned was the sort of when people try to opt out of the system. Right. And one of the things that I see happening and that I talk about a lot is the idea that like, especially I think, and we're going to talk about why women are socialized this way or people socialized as women are socialized this way, but we sort of, it's like, we have this fantasy that we could sort of opt out and then somehow like we're not part of this as though our opting out doesn't have consequences. So I'm curious, why do you think that's sort of like, and more passive opting out? Most people are not like, I'm going to move to the middle of nowhere and forage for acorns, right? But it's just kind of like, oh, I don't like to think or talk about money or I don't like, I don't want to be greedy. I don't want to- the pursuit of wealth is wrong, right? Yeah, Yeah. I'm just going to like opt out of this. Why do you think that's so prevalent for women especially? I so appreciate this question because one of the big criticisms I get from- other feminists is they're like, you are promoting capitalism. And I'm like, I'm not truly. I'm not, I do not like capitalism capital. Like this is my book. My work is not in support of capitalism, but to your point, when you opt out, unless you truly choose to opt out, which I would argue is an almost impossible choice, right? You actually hurt yourself way deeper than you trying to give like a middle finger to the system. Like You are Jesus does not care. Right, right. And like collectively, yes, right. If we're opting out of certain things that we, you know, that's that's the only way anything's changed, right? But when you are like money is just a social construct and I'm gonna push it away, you're not wrong. It is a social construct. However, it is how we again provide stability and safety for us in our current society and also how anything gets done or changed. And when marginalized groups push away money and go, oh, the pursuit of wealth is wrong or bad, money has no inherent value. Truly, it doesn't. It's a stack of government-issued paper, right? It is It is Ben Franklin on some tree babies, right? It has no inherent value. What you choose to do with it is where you know the morality comes in. You mentioned Jeff Bezos. I live in Seattle. There's a lot of talk about how you know the moral bad that Amazon has done for communities, right? Mm-hmm. You also have a ton of people who are using money in a really incredibly progressive way. But I would argue that the person you actually hurt most when you're like, nope, I am not going to participate is actually yourself and the communities around you who do need that power and influence. And again, it's what you do with it. I'm not out here saying I want everybody to have you know billions of dollars. It's more, I want you to have enough money to be able to provide for yourself, to be able to choose the situations you want to be in. And again, to be able to change the society and communities that right, exist right. around you. I mean, we, there's a, probably a whole other conversation. I feel like this is part of the reason that people think that the only thing they can do is like opt out is that there's such a lack of like material analysis on the left now, right? Like nobody's oh, talking totally. like, the death of labor unions, the lack of a like political solidarity. And movement. I totally get it. Right. And we talk the entire first chapter of my book is all about the emotions of money because what we don't realize is so many of these narratives are rooted in us 
by like age seven. That's actually, mm-hmm. we know from data that that is the vast majority of your money habits are cemented by like second grade. Hmm. And so what's happened, right, is like you may have seen either an individual or like a general group have a lot of money and be evil and be like, money makes you evil, mm-hmm. right? Like that's the that's the conclusion. Or I see, again, all of these, you know, huge Fortune 500 CEOs well, or billionaires. Explicitly. I mean, totally. so, right, there's like that kind of explicit morality of like people who want money are bad. We're not like that in this family. Like we don't. Right. You know. And it's like, I don't want, again, a stack of government issue paper. I want what it can offer me. I want the choices. I want the ability to travel or to have kids. Or we, I was talking about abortion access before, right? Like I'm speaking, of course, of a place of privilege, both racial and economic privilege of, you know, even if abortion is not legal in my states, I will find an abortion because mm-hmm. of my skin color and because I have, you know, the economic background or I have the money to do that. Yeah. Right. And it's like, that's a choice. That's an option for me, even if, you know, the government tells me it's not because I have money. And so again, it's like, all of these things are so nuanced. And that's my other big pet peeve is like the personal finance experts that we grew up with, or that we tend to think of like the Dave Ramsey's or the Susie Ormans make this extremely black and white, right? The reason you're not rich is because you don't work hard enough. And it's like, nope, that's not it at all. It's systemic oppression. Right. Few other factors. (laughs) You know, the single mom hearing that who's working three jobs and working incredibly hard is just feeling gaslit and unseen. Legacy of redlining, labor exploitation. Everything. Racism, ableism, (laughs) sexism, homophobia, all of those things. Right. Right. And it's also, again, one of the narratives that we talk about in the book and that we debunk is like pursuit of wealth is wrong or inherently evil. It's truly not. Now, again, you can do really evil things with that it's money. It's a resource like anything you. else, right? It's like right. you can it's use a, a hammer to build a house or hit someone in the head. That's literally, it's, I have a metaphor that knives, <laughs> right? It's like knives can make you a yummy veggie stir fry. They can also cut you, right? right. And it's like, yeah, I mean, what that looks like. <laughs> yeah. One of the things I really appreciate about your work is that I think I I think one thing we kind of have in common is coming from a very pragmatic place of like, okay, this is the system we're in. I got you like I'm alive for another 40 to 70 years, depending, yep. right? Like knock on wood, right, right? Right. Like, is the revolution coming in my lifetime? I don't think so. We don't seem to be developing that way. And that sort of stereotypical revolution, right? So, like, what is the revolution we can create individually in our own lives and in our communities? And it's not going to come from being like, well, I'm just going to not start my business that would help women do whatever, or I'm not going to negotiate for a raise. I'd rather that the older white dudes in charge of this law firm keep more of their money that somehow, right? I'm curious to hear about your background because I mean, I've talked to us on the podcast before, but I was raised by, I had like a very split, (laughs) my father's an entrepreneur, my mother's a social justice lawyer, Mm. public interest lawyer. So I got like a lot of mixed messages and- I definitely growing up identified more with the like social justice public interest side. I was a reproductive rights litigator, you know, for nonprofit, obviously, and like Which an fucking academic. amazing. Thank you. That's okay. amazing. But, I mean, my colleagues have stayed in the field and done all that work. I wasn't in the scheme of things doing it for that long, but it was such a mindset shift to go from that, you know, to being an entrepreneur and believing I could make money or that it was okay to make money or to even think about money. So I'm curious what your kind of person, if you can share what your personal background was and how it kind of impacted your journey. Yeah. So I had parents who didn't grow up with a lot themselves, my dad especially. And I try to keep their story private. They're very private people. They also hate social Mm -hmm. media and all of this, but they didn't grow up with a lot. And so I think they made really intentional choices. I know they made really intentional choices about, you know, how they were going to structure their lives so that I could have all of the things that they didn't. 
Mm-hmm. And I say very much that like I was their investment. You know, mm-hmm. it was like we're going to sacrifice certain things so that she can go to a good school, so she can take piano lessons, so she can you know have the stable upbringing. So I grew up with you know a lot of like middle to upper middle class privilege, but because I think my parents were so focused on like okay, we're not going to do the same thing that mm-hmm. we experienced, and I had the privilege of a financial education. My parents were literally sitting down with me and, you know, teaching me how to credit card worked and Mm -hmm. how to save. And I talk about in the book, what I, you know, call your first money memory. What is like the first time you remember thinking about money and anybody listening can do this at home of like, what is the first time you considered money, considered the value of it. Mm -hmm. It will tell you a lot about your childhood upbringing about the way you view money. And for me, it was going to see Annie the musical. And my mom told me, okay, if you want a ticket to Annie, you have to save money. And I had an Altoids tin and I put quarters in there. And it was, you know, the act of like, okay, I want something I need to save for it. So Mm -hmm. I grew up with that and thought that was totally normal. I was like, okay, everybody knows. And then I graduated college and was starting to have conversations. And I was like, oh, this is not a thing. This was in fact a privilege. And I also graduated college five months before Donald Trump got elected. And so I was coming into adulthood and womanhood, trying to figure out the kind of person I wanted to be and did have this education. And again, through my own research, through conversations, through being the friend everybody was coming to to ask for advice, I was like, oh, this might be it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This might be my my contribution to not only the world, but to, you know, a feminist movement or to Mm -hmm. hopefully doing what I can to bridge the inequality gap in terms of like, you know, how I grew up with, you know, you know, mindset for my parents, I think that it was very much like we make smart financial decisions. We do right by our communities. You know, we volunteer a lot, but I think my parents were on the same page. My mom was a non-compensated working mom, a stay-at-home mom. Mm -hmm. And my dad is a salesman. And I think that was a big focus of like, we work hard and we show up and we will be rewarded for that. Mm -hmm. And of course, with a lot of balancing their, their real life struggles with money and especially as children, a lack of probably reckoning with the privilege of just mm-hmm. the, you know, oh, you work Lots hard, you work money. hard. And yeah, some people get, but that's yeah. also such, I think a, a, it's interesting that you say both your parents had that because I find these days, at least that feels like a very gendered mindset that like women mm. are like, I'm going to work hard and someone will reward me. Yeah. Right. And so that there's this sort of like, well, I've been doing a good job. I, you know, somebody's going to come by and say, you deserve a promotion and a raise and a pat on the head, right? We've also been conditioned, right? Right, totally. Again, what I say in the book is one of the narratives, we have an entire chapter like earning money. And basically every chapter I spend like debunking the narratives or the beliefs we have, right? Mm -hmm. And so one of them is like, oh, I'm doing good work. People will see me. And it's like, no. And you've been socialized (laughs) to believe that because one, it keeps you comfortable, right? You're not playing big. You're not demanding anything, right? You're just like this cute little woman. Meek and virtuous and waiting for somebody to recognize you. Right. And it's also controllable. It keeps you controllable. And that's really the thesis for all of my work is it's like, again, when you have money, you are uncontrollable in the coolest fucking way. Like (laughs) no one can tell you what to do because you don't have to subscribe to any of that. Mm -hmm. But when you're yeah, thinking like somebody is just going to notice me. That is not like your own personal defect. That is social conditioning that you're just like, okay, I'll keep my head down and I'll do good work and someone's going to figure it out. And then suddenly you wake up and you've been at the job with the same amount of pay for five years and you're like, oh, maybe that's wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody's coming. I'm sure any, any day now. Right. I'd love to hear a little bit about your thoughts on, I find that especially when I'm coaching people, there's sort of that people seem to have a hard time. And again, I coach people, socialize as women, so maybe not people, but a hard time balancing this sort of, it's like 
you know, I work with perfectionists often. So it's a lot of all or nothing Mm. thinking in general, but it's like either I am like super thrifty and amazing at saving, but I like have a real problem earning or creating more money or even believing in that. Or I am like great at creating money and I'm great at spending money and I don't know where it goes. (laughs) Right. Like how do you, what are your thoughts on like how you balance those two things or is balance even the right, right word? Yeah. I want to first talk, you said the word perfectionism. I feel obligated. This is like my big thing that is related to money, but also not. Perfectionism is not a good thing. Right. I need you to hear me. Perfectionism <laughs> is not a good thing. It's not. Elizabeth Gilbert, author of Eat, Pray, Love, Big Magic. She has this great quote that perfectionism is fear in stilettos. Mm. you are afraid. That's okay. But you're yep. afraid. You're afraid of fucking up. You're afraid that somebody's going to figure out you're a fraud. You're deeply afraid of maybe I'm not good enough. Right. Yeah. And it's a control. You're trying to control yes, everything. It, but of course we can't control anything. Right. So <laughs> you being a perfectionist is something you are like, you know, wearing as a badge of honor. And I promise you, it's actually the thing that's holding you back. Mm-hmm. You just need to get started. You'll figure it out along the way. Right. And I, I tell this about two business owners that I coach as well of like, you're putting barriers in front of yourself as like, the hoops you have to jump through that make you feel productive, but it's just because you're scared. Like when you first start a business, right? It's like, oh, I need the perfect website. No, you don't. You just need a website. It doesn't matter what it looks like right now. Okay. I need a logo. I need a brand color. I need to have the perfect name. You'll figure that out. You'll figure that out. So any entrepreneur will tell you the ones they started with, they like don't use anymore. Literally me did not start. Oh my God. Everything. Redesign your mind. I had a whole graphic and I trademarked yeah. it and her I first hundred K didn't years. come. The name didn't come until three years after I started my business. Yeah. Like, so everything will change. So I want to acknowledge that first is like professionalism when it comes to money, when it comes to your business, when it comes to anything in life, I need you to stop believing that's a badge of honor. And again, I know why you're doing it. I have all the empathy for you in the world. You're scared. You're fearful. You're like, what if I'm not enough? You are enough. And we got to let the perfectionism go. Mm. Done is better than perfect. In terms of the balance between like spending, saving, being frugal, and also being like YOLO, I think there is a balance. Again, a lot of traditional personal finance experts are telling you to like deprive yourself and to hate your life in order to achieve your goals. And I truly believe that one, that's not sustainable. It's like a diet. If you tell me I can't have fried chicken, I want fried chicken. That's how my brain works. You can't hate dating and then fall in love easily. Like you can't hate the journey and then- Totally. Totally. And I think that you're more likely to sabotage yourself if you put really hard restrictions around it. In the same way, of course, is like blowing all your money right now means that 65-year-old you who would like to retire someday doesn't have a lot to show for it. So that's one of the grounding exercises I really do is one, if you're struggling with trying to enjoy your life now, right? If you're hyper frugal, what is that dream life? Like, what does that look like? And don't just be like, don't paint in broad strokes, be really specific. What time do you wake up? Where do you wake up? Do you wake up beside somebody? Like what happens then when you get up, right? What kind of work do you do? How long do you do it for? Like be so specific about what that life looks like for you. And then again, how do we use money as a tool to get there? On the flip side, if you're having trouble saving money, the question is, how do I build the dream life for all of the things I want to do in the future? Mm -hmm. Okay, I want to travel in a year. What does that look like? Where are you going? What airplane seat are you sitting in? Like, Mm -hmm. what are you eating on this trip? Like, who are you going with? Like, you can be really hyper-specific. And then, again, you work backwards. Okay, I want that. I need X to do that. I'm going to figure out how to save that. And I also talk about when it comes to retirement, that's one of the things that we think is so far off. And we're like, why should I care? Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. I'm in my 20s or 30s. And it's so so far away. And again, I was talking about like 65-year-old me 
65-year-old Tori is going to bring drinking Savion Blanc with lunch and flirting with her much younger Pilates instructor. <laughs> and she is like adopting dogs and living in the Italian countryside. And like, she's having a great fucking time. And she cannot do that. Grandma Nana Tori cannot do that unless I do some taking care of her right now as 28-year-old me. So I think there is a balance that can be found. And again, we help you do that in the book, but really picturing again, what does my life look like? And then how do I use a tool to get there? Mm -hmm. And what do you think about the sort of the kind of tension between the people who, who think about, like, I definitely had to go more from thinking about the way you get money is you either save it or you have like a little bit and you protect it with your life and then it like grows in this over time versus the idea of I can go out and create money, right? I can go out and make money. Also love this question. Again, very gendered thing. You literally Google like how to save money or like money tips 2023. And still the advice for men is make more, right? It's invest in real estate, invest in the stock market, negotiate your salary. And the advice for women is deprivation, right? Spend less, that your purse ain't it, you cow, right? Like, like that's basically what it is, right? <laughs> and it's like fear yeah. five meals to make under five dollars. And again, it's right. keeping you controllable, and it's also yeah. so fucking gendered. And I had a friend who came to me. She's also an entrepreneur, Victoria Garrick Brown, and she was getting married. Yeah, and she, yeah, yeah, she's great. And so she came to me almost in tears one day and she goes, I bought this really expensive dress for my bridal shower and I love it and I feel good in it, but I'm so scared about like what people are going to think about me spending money on this thing. And I asked her, I go, her now husband, I was like, so what if Max bought a Rolex? What would the comments be? Mm-hmm. And she was like, They'd be like, cool Rolex, bro. And I'm like, yeah, they'd be cool Rolex, bro. Looks like you're doing well for yourself. But the comments for women, right, are like, that's frivolous. Why didn't you donate more? Like, why didn't you save that money? And everything is gendered. And again, when it comes to earning money, it's the same sort of thing. It's like, okay, men, talk about money with your friends, earn more in stocks, make more money. And for us women, it's like deprive, deprive, deprive. Right, limit. Like the assumption is that men know what they're doing with money and women don't. So it's like if a man buys a Rolex, it's like he must be doing well and he made uh-huh. good for him, gave himself a present. As opposed was, to Victoria spending this right. money on this beautiful dress. It's like, oh, she either, it's not her money, which is the thing all the time, right? It's daddy's yeah. money. It's her husband's money. It's somebody right. else's money. Or it's like, oh, that was such a frivolous purchase. So yeah. Again, like this is like my other come to Jesus moment is it's like the wage gap is the thing we talk about all the time and we should continue talking about, right? We're recording this a day after equal pay day, but we're not talking about the investing gap. And this is the thing that's actually really limiting women's progress is because Mm -hmm. we're taking less money because of the wage gap. And then we're either saving it or we're just like putting it under our mattress or in a checking Mm -hmm. account. And we're thinking like, that's enough, right? But the truth is, it's like, you won't be able to retire. The average person won't be able to retire if they don't invest. And there's ways to invest that aren't risky or gambling or scary. But again, you've been conditioned to think that it is so you don't do it. And again, shameless plug, we have an entire chapter on how to invest in my book. But it's so common of like, women deprive yourself, spend less. That's how you get rich. And the truth is, it's just like the math doesn't work. It's a lot easier (laughs) to expand your income than it is to deprive yourself. Cause you'll get to a place where you'll go, Oh, I can't cut back anymore. Like the cost of living keeps going up. So you are not, and it's just not fun. Right. It is is infeasible and not fun, which means it's like a double out. But I think in theory, your income, you know, potential or your investing potential is, you know, limitless. And again, I put that in quotes because we have things to do besides just make money and be 
capitalist machines, but like, <laughs> it's a lot easier to make more money than it is to spend right. nothing. Well, that socialization is so important, right? Cause I think what a lot of women think about investing is like, just like, it's too complicated. It's math. And I'm bad at math somehow. Right. Because women are socialized to think they're bad at math. Yes. So yeah. there's just like all that socialization of like, and I mean, I see this even in like entrepreneurs when I, I have like women entrepreneurs I work with and it's like doubting every decision they made. That's about money. Yeah. They almost like, obviously some people doubt their coaching doubt, whatever, but so much, I see like women being very confident in other areas of their business or their life. And then they just have that same assumption, like basically every financial decision, if I made it, it was probably wrong. And then right. I have to be myself up about it. And I think that this ties back to the perfectionism, that intolerance for risk, that is a hallmark of perfectionism, right? Because you don't want to take a risk because God forbid it doesn't work out. Then you're going to say to yourself, I'm such a fucking idiot. I knew I shouldn't have done that. See, I have no business investing. Whereas in investing, like being an entrepreneur or anything else, like going to be ups and downs, you're going to make like a great decision and a poor decision. And how are you going to be there for yourself through that is really the question. I love everything you said. One thing, literally last week, I recorded an episode on my show where we talked about like perfectionism again. And this idea, like when you fail, you then think I'm a failure. It becomes your identity. It's not just like a thing that happened. It's like I failed, right? Same thing with money. It's it's like, I'm bad with money. You are telling yourself like a thing that's part of you, that's your identity, not just a thing that happened or a choice you made or something you fucked up on once, right? It's like, oh, I am bad at money. I am a failure. I couldn't hack it. And it's like, no. The thing that's in mind is like, what if you stubbed your toe and then for the rest of your life, you're like, I'm a toe stubber. I can't be trusted with toes. You would never make that part of your identity, but you make one business decision or one investing decision that doesn't work out. And it's like, I'm bad at this, right? It's part of your identity. So- and this assumes you make a decision at all because what data right. and, and a lot of conversations with women tell me is they don't even make the decision because right. the analysis paralysis, they're so scared of fucking right. up that there's no decision. And I want to go on record saying the worst decision you can make when it comes to investing is making no decision at all because yeah. you are losing time. You're losing all of this flexibility because time is more important than the amount of money when it comes to investing. So the longer you wait to make a decision, you actually, you can't get that time back. So yeah. Echo like stamp of approval, everything. And like, you don't have to be, nobody's expecting you to be like random person listens podcast. You should invest. You don't need to be like the most brilliant stock picker of all time. That's not what you're going to be doing. Even the stock pickers that are professionals are bad at their job. Literally, they had a study where a house cat named Orlando picked stocks versus a (laughs) professional stock picker, and he chose better stocks. Like, again, whether it's me or somebody else, there's people out there to guide you. There's resources there. You don't have to go it alone. Just like... I say this all the time, but like we don't come out of the womb expecting to like play the tuba or speak fluent Italian. And yet we expect to be good right. with money. We think we have the gene or we don't, right? It's either I'm good with money, the identity thing again, or right. I'm bad with money. Yeah. I, if I wanted to go learn how to speak Italian, I can't just like walk out into the world and expect that to happen, right? I got to move to Italy or I got to I got to do yeah. some Duolingo or I got to, you know, hire a tutor. It's the same thing with money, right? There's people out there or resources out there for you. You're not just going to be magically good at it. And that's okay. Yeah. And that's, I mean, it's such a perfect perfectionism example because I used to, before I found coaching, do things like sign up for French classes and then not want to go because my French wasn't good. Right. Which is like, (laughs) I'm taking the class to learn to speak French, but also I'm embarrassed. Already speak French. Yeah. Right. I'm embarrassed. Let's talk a little bit about that. Like, I think there's so much, especially for people who, whatever, have this story for whatever reason. Maybe they've made a mistake. Maybe it's just the story in their family. 
Like the story in my family was that I was bad with money. And I think I've now effectively dispelled that, but it took a while. And like, where did that story come from? I don't even really know, but that was the story. And then I absorbed that. Right. So people, there's like such deep shame around this, right. Of like, I made a mistake or I wasn't good with it. Or often it's like the mistake, like you said, is an action. Like I ignored a bill or something because I was scared of it. or I didn't want to look at this thing. And then of course it compounded into a nightmare because I was avoiding it. Right. So like, where do you think, like, what is that shame about? Like, where does that morality discourse come from around this? Is it religious? Like, where is it coming from? Mm. Yeah. If I were to like go out of the street right now and ask a hundred people, like, what is the emotion you associate with money? It is probably not going to be joy or abundance or ease, <laughs> which is how I feel like about money. Right. Anxiety and how I've and shame. learned it's going to be anxiety, guilt, shame, fear. Yeah. Right. And again, why I spend the entire first chapter talking about the emotions of money is I can't get you to create a plan together or put a plan together. I can't get you to learn how to pay off debt. I can't teach you how to invest until you start to understand where is all the shame coming from. So it depends on the person, right? Personal finance is personal. Again, we know that the vast majority of our money habits are cemented when we're a kid. So it's likely, you know, at least part of it is from your family or your biological family. Can we pause on cemented to say just, we both believe this, I know, but we just need to articulate it for the brains listening. You can change it now. We're not saying that if you have those thoughts since you were seven. Thank you for, yes. Thank you for clarifying. Just meaning it's more more like, it's set unless you, unless you work to change it. Yep. Totally. It's like any sort of trauma, right? It's like big T trauma, little T trauma, it's probably in there some place. And unless we work to navigate it, and you can, of course, work to come to terms with your trauma and process it. But unless you do that work, it's not going to happen. So yeah, thank you for clarifying. It's not like all hope is lost. (laughs) I just Um, know the brains that listen. And just there's like three people out there being like, Tori said it was seven, I was seven. So now that's it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it, it has a lot to do with probably how you were raised. Again, a lot of this is systemic and at a societal level about like how we're conditioned to be as specifically women or marginalized groups of like how we want to show up. And then it's like this fun cyclical thing, which is again, if society's telling me I'm bad with money and then I make a mistake, oh, I'm bad with money. Society's telling me I'm bad with money. I'm bad. At money. It, it just continues. So one of the easiest things you can do to stop the shame cycle is be like an anthropologist in your own life and just be really mindful of what's going on. Oh, interesting. I bought that pair of shoes I didn't need and did not want because my boss made me feel like shit today. Mm-hmm. Interesting, right? And that's it. It's just that was really interesting what I just did. Not I'm a piece of shit for doing that. How could I how could I fuck up and make this mistake? It's just like, oh, interesting. That's what's happening. I am emotionally triggered to spend and spending might be, you know, an emotional response for me or a vice for me. Okay, so next time I go to the store, I'm not necessarily going to not buy something, but I'm just going to watch what happens, right? I'm going to watch what sort of thoughts I have, what sort of, you know, things are happening in my body. Am I getting sweaty? Am I like, was my heart racing or am I just like reckless abandon? This is just, Mm -hmm. okay, it's going to go crazy. So just start looking very non-critically at what is going on in your brain, what's going on in your body when you're making decisions. And then as you progress, start to reroute those decisions. You can go, hey, I know that when I go to the store after work, I'm going to be more tempted to buy something. And I'm not going to do that. (laughs) I'm not, I'm going to avoid the store. And I'm also going to try to get to the root of the problem, which it sounds like I don't like my job and I don't feel respected by my boss. And therefore, I am making financial decisions I regret, right? 
The problem is very rarely actually the choices financially that you're making, because we know that money is emotional and psychological. Mm -hmm. And just like drugs, alcohol, gambling, anything else, it turns into a vice. So it's actually a really great opportunity for us to look at our life as a whole and be like, how are we trying to use money to cope emotionally with the things that are going on? Yeah, I think understanding it as a dopamine reward loop, right, helps you just be curious about it. That's, I mean, and if you're not, then it's like anything else. Okay, you stop smoking and you start drinking, you stop dieting, but now you start shopping, you start like, right, right, you're just chasing dopamine and trying to regulate yourself and your emotions with whatever kind of reward system you've set up for yourself. But I think like understanding what's happening in your brain is always, I think for me, helpful in demoralizing it sort of, right? It's not a character flaw. It's that you don't have any emotional regulation tools and your brain desperately would like some pleasure now after all of the stress of the day, right? Right, right. So I'm curious, you sort of teach that women especially need to plan for their retirement starting earlier. And I think even myself, like knowing all this stuff, I'm 41 and I'm still kind of like, that's a long, especially as an entrepreneur, you know, you're sort of like, I don't know. I mean, six years ago, I made zero and now I make that like what, you know, it feels so far away and like hard to even conceptualize that far. So I'm curious, you know, I think tell us a little bit about why it's so important for women in particular to start, because I think it's too easy to just be like, I'll deal with that in 10 years. Yeah. One again, like picturing 65 year old you, we know that women are more likely to be in poverty once they retire than men are. We also are not promised any sort of government support. Like, I don't want to rely on Social Security, which is already kind of a terrible system. You know, like my lovely grandma is on Social Security and she told me how much she gets. And I was like, that is nothing. (laughs) That is like so little. And it's also this reality. I think the common thing that I, you know, I'm 28. I'm like right on the cusp between millennial and Gen Z. And the other thing I hear from people is it's like, well, the world is burning. So like, why would I say I hear that a lot and I'm like, the world's going to be burning for a while. Like also, if if we are in a hunger game situation, wow, I would rather have some money than no money at all. Like, or if it, if we're, I get, I do get to retire. Wow. I would like to be wrong about that and right. still be protected rather right. than looking What's back and being like, scenario? right, right, right. <laughs> so I, I think that's unfortunately a common misconception too. I, I read a stat that it's up to like 40% of people are like, the world won't be around. So like, fuck it. Guys, um, I need you to know something about history. I'm not saying that I don't believe that there are serious things happening right now, but humans always think the world is ending. Literally, in every I was, generation, people think the world is ending. We had two like, full world wars. Like it was we, Ma- and then a first, cold it war. was Malthus overpopulation. The world's going to end. There was the Cold War. The world's going to end. Like you just I have am to of Irish ancestry, back. and my like Irish ancestors lived through the potato famine. Which, a fun fact, the only reason they did is they hoarded potatoes, <laughs> which is like fun little. <laughs> Dunlap Listen, ancestral that's thing. That's how you got here. Yeah. So it's it's like it, again, all of these narratives is it's like yes, that might happen, but aren't you glad you protected yourself? Right. And I, again, I mentioned before, but I, it's so worth repeating. There's this misconception that again we discuss in the book is that like oh, I need a bunch of money to invest. I need thousands of dollars, and like I can't get started until I have thousands of dollars. And time is so much more important than the amount of money because of this lovely thing called compound interest. Compound interest simply defined as when your interest earns interest, earns interest, earns interest, right? And so even if you start with maybe a couple hundred dollars once, that will compound to be you know hundreds of dollars and then thousands of dollars over years, if not decades. So even if all you have is a little bit of money right now, 
once, it is better to get started than thinking like, oh, I'll just wait later because compound interest needs time more than it needs like a crazy amount of money. And that's the powerful, powerful thing about that's it. That's so important, right? And I think any of you have listened to this podcast and have done that in some other area of your life, right? If you've applied like the minimum baseline or any of these other tools I teach that are like, just do five minutes once a week, just right. If you have done that, then you know in your own life that you can literally start by just thinking, I'm going to be 3% less mean to myself today. And then yeah. five years later, you're like, oh, I actually love myself. Look at that. Right, right, right. The same thing happens with compound interest and that sort of that little bit at a time. I, the other thing that I see come up, I think this is just another piece of like, yes, anything could happen. But I love that sort of like, let's just, these terrible things might happen, but let's also just try to be prepared, right? I mean, I think there's right. also, you know, I have coached people whose thoughts were sort of like, there's no point in kind of trying to make money because it's just going to be taken away from me. Like the government's going to take it. People are going to take it. Like, I think there's a lot of sort of, you know, historical precedent for that in certain marginalized communities. And both historically, I mean, as a, you know, as a Jew from thousands of years ago, that's a thing. And then for black people in America and for, but also I was coaching a friend of mine who's from like a white woman from a family who lived in Connecticut for 300 years. And she had family trauma around that because the government took their house to create us, you know, took like the farm, the family farm to create a reservoir. So, but I think that like what you're seeing is so important. It's like, yes, all these things are uncontrollable. I don't know. Maybe that might happen. Maybe Armageddon is coming. Maybe it's going to be the post-apocalyptic. Maybe the world's ending. But right now, like we're right here and it's such all or nothing thinking, right? In a weird way, it's like a similar form of perfectionism as opposed to like, we'd rather just be an all or nothing thinking and have those excuses than be like, I'm gonna feel really uncomfortable in my brain when I try to read this article 12 times about what investing is or whatever. I either it is invest a million dollars that I don't have right now or I don't do it at all, right? right. Yeah, it is all or nothing. And how much and- of it is just avoiding that discomfort? Like really, you're yes. just avoiding the feeling you're going to have in your body when you sit down and try to understand something and you don't understand it yet, which is why I think having your book is like a resource like that is so important. Which And we really try in the book to make it like, I know you're uncomfortable right now. I see you. I hear you. I can like, <laughs> okay. I can see your grief. Like you're reading this book and you're like, oh, I don't know what to do. Like I see that. Yeah. And just like learning anything new again, it's going to be a period of discomfort because you're going to be bad at it. And it's not a bad thing to be bad at something, right? If I get on some roller skates and I go roller blade around the block, I'm going to fall on my ass. It's going to happen. Of course, like all the cliches are true. It matters that I get back up again and I keep going and I'm going to be a better roller blader the more often I do it. It's going to be uncomfortable. And we know from our brains as well, like this is like back to, you know, caveman times where it was like, if I go out of my cave, if I eat from the bush that I haven't eaten from before, I will die. And so what your brain is doing is, oh, if I do something new, the bodily response is the same. It's like asking somebody out on a date. You're like, your body is like, don't do it. You're going to fucking die. Like, don't do it. It's just like, no, I'm asking somebody out on a date. And if they say no, that sucks, but it's fine. Like, it's fine. Yeah. Same thing with learning anything new, including money. Your body is telling you like, mayday, mayday, this is unsafe. And it's not a healthy type of fear, but it is a totally normal type of fear because it's trying to keep you alive. And then that's the lovely thing where you just tell your brain, hey, I got it. We're safe. We're going to be okay. It's going to be a little scary, but it's going to get better and talk yourself down. Yeah. And that just even the process of learning, like the literally how your head feels when you're trying to learn something new can be uncomfortable and that's okay. 
So tell people where they can find your book and find your work so that they can learn more and feel terrible. And that's okay. We talk about that <laughs> on the podcast all Don't the time. Don't feel terrible. <laughs> if you feel like you're going to throw up a little, you're on the right path. That's kind of one of our things here. Yeah. What is it? Again, all the cliches. If it doesn't scare you a little bit, your dreams aren't big enough. Thank you for having me. Financial Feminist is the name of my book and podcast. You can find it wherever books and podcasts are sold or delivered to you. And Her First 100K is our brand and our website, hdrfirst100k.com. Awesome. Go buy the book, people. Chickens. Thank you. I will see you all next week. If you're loving what you're learning in the podcast, you have got to come check out The Clutch. The Clutch is the podcast community for all things Unfuck Your Brain. It's where you can get individual help applying the concepts to your own life. It's where you can learn new coaching tools not shared on the podcast that will blow your mind even more. And it's where you can hang out and connect over all things thought work with other podcast chickens just like you and me. It's my favorite place on earth and it will change your life. I guarantee it. Come join us at www.unfuckyourbrain.com forward slash the clutch. That's unfuckyourbrain.com forward slash the clutch. I can't wait to see you there.